Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look together at verses 13 through 16 in Matthew 5, but I'd like to read starting from the, the beginning of the chapter. This is the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, spans chapter 5 through chapter 7. At the very beginning, we come upon what's often been called the Beatitudes. Beatitude is uh, kind of an anglicization of the Latin for, um, I think it's Latin, uh, for blessed is the one, blessed is he, uh, which we see in verses 3 and following. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others." so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Beloved servants of Christ our Lord, the other day, when the landscape was still blanketed in white, while my kids were still napping, I I went out for a run. It was such a beautiful, still morning, I couldn't resist. The sun wasn't quite up yet. It was just absolutely gorgeous. But, start of my run, everywhere I ran was slush, thick slush, which is not ideal for running. Then I got out to the pavement, and the slush turned to packed Snow, which had been glazed into ice, which is less ideal for running. And then finally, I managed to see some bare pavement, only to find out that that was coated in black ice. It was a beautiful morning. It was not ideal for running. And it struck me as I was trying to find decent grip for my shoes, that life in this world is often like that. That is to say, we are surrounded by beauty. It's actually difficult to go through the day and not be confronted by the beauty that God has given us. 
in everything from the beauty of a winter landscape to the perfectly formed fingers and toes of one of our infants. We are surrounded by the beauty created by the greatest artist who ever has been or ever will be. And yet as we enjoy that beauty, and sometimes limiting our enjoyment of that beauty, we find our footsteps in treacherous places. Not so much slush and black ice as sin and brokenness and heartache and hurt. We're surrounded by beauty, but also by a society where we don't fit. When the people around us act like mankind has the ability to influence the very climate, or when they willingly legitimize the murder of infants, we stand dumbfounded, recognizing that we are aliens in this place. When we go to the doctor and we hear an absolutely unthinkable diagnosis of the sort that really only happens to other people, we, we long for something that's better. And then there's the brokenness that enters into our relationships. Man and woman who were made one before the Lord suddenly find themselves strangers in their own home or, or parents who have loved and doted over their children, find that there's suddenly a wall between them and their child. And we find ourselves on ice, struggling for a purchase, struggling for a a way to move forward. And we wonder, why? Why, if Jesus has won the victory... If Jesus intends to make all things new, if there is nothing that is greater than God, then why are we still standing on black ice? Why has he not brought the fullness of the victory that he's already accomplished? Why do we get to enjoy all of this beauty and yet at the same time find ourselves struggling even to stand upright? Why? Jesus knew that we would experience those struggles. And he knew that we would ask, why? At the very start of the Sermon on the Mount, he points out that we're going to stand in slippery places. We're going to be the poor in spirit, the ones who mourn, the meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who show peace to others and forgiveness, and yet we're going to be persecuted. And reviled, and others will speak all kinds of evil against us falsely because we serve the Lord. We're going to stand in slippery places. And he knew that seeing that, experiencing that, we would ask why. And so he gave us the text that we're looking at this evening. He gave us this text that demonstrates that we are here, brothers and sisters, in part to fulfill our greatest calling in this world, and in part, For the world. For the sake of others. But above all, we're still here. We're still struggling for forward momentum. We're still struggling to stand upright in this place because in that way we can bring God glory. The king 
leaves his subjects in this world to bring glory unto God. That's the end of the story. That's the conclusion. But as we consider how he leaves his subjects in this world in order to bring glory unto God, we're going to see that we do that in two ways. The first of which is exerting God's influence by our uniqueness. He uses two metaphors in this text. And the first is salt. Now, of course, we all know what salt is, right? Kids, you know where the salt is found on the table and you know what it's used for. It makes the food taste even better, right? But that's not all that salt is used for. He says, you are the salt of the earth. If we're to understand that, we need to understand what salt is used for. But before that, we need to recognize something essential about salt. Salt's unique. We have some really great cooks and bakers in this room. And they know that nothing is quite a substitute for salt. Nothing can do everything the way salt can do or do it as well. There's a lot of things that you can substitute in the kitchen. My wife likes to substitute some applesauce for uh, oil because it makes the cookies a little healthier and it doesn't really change much in terms of texture. But you can't substitute something for salt, really. At the same time that salt is totally unique, salt only works by being there, by coming into contact. Right there we see a lesson about what it means to be the salt of the earth. As Christians, we are unique. Right? We're going to talk in a, a couple of minutes about what that uniqueness looks like. But, but we need to recognize that if we're truly devoted to Christ, if we truly are living as God calls us to live, those lives of gratitude, those lives of commitment to Christ, we're going to be unique. People are going to notice that we're different. They might not know why, they might not like it, but they're going to notice that we're different, right? But they're only going to notice if, like salt on your food, we're coming into contact with them, right? We can't be the salt of the earth. We can't do what we're called to do and be what we're called to be if we never come in contact with the world, if we remove ourselves, if we keep only to ourselves, God left us here to bring glory to Him by going out into the world. Just like that salt is no good to anyone as long as it's in the shaker. You have to put it on the food. You have to put it on what it's, what it's going to influence So we, if we're to do what we're called to do, have to be out in the world. Not of the world, but in the world. So keep that in mind. Now what is salt for? The Bible shows us at least four ways in which salt is used. The obvious one is to season food. Right? Often, it's funny, growing up, my, uh, my parents struggled with a bit of high blood pressure when I was a kid, and so they, they pretty much cut salt out. I got to college, and I saw all my friends, you know, putting salt on their food, and I was like, yeah, yeah. When in Rome, right? I was like, oh, that's really good. <laughs> salt, uh, scientists really aren't entirely sure how that works. They think that maybe it uh, suppresses bitter flavors and allows other flavors to come out more fully. But in whatever way it works, salt makes good food great, right? It brings out the flavor. A related use is that salt preserves things. Before the age of freezers and refrigerators, if you wanted to preserve your meat, you could salt it, and that would allow the meat to stay uh, 
well, to not turn rotten for a lot longer of a time. That's one reason that salt in the ancient world was often used in confirming a covenant, because salt is a preservative. It represents that which is long-lasting. And so salt was often involved in the ceremony confirming a covenant to indicate that that covenant would be long-lasting, right? So salt is a flavor enhancer. Salt is a preservative. It's also used to purify things. Salt has a natural cleansing power. It's able to kill germs. That's part of the reason that it preserves meat so well. It's also why, one of the reasons at least, that... uh, in the ancient world, midwives would sometimes rub down a baby with salt. It was thought to, and with good reason, it was, it was thought to purify, to uh, kill germs. And that's also one of the reasons that sacrifices in the Old Testament were salted. Hey, kids, did you know that? that when you brought the sacrifice to the temple... One of the things the priests would do, they would kill it, they would pour out the blood, they would uh, take off the skin, they would cut it into its pieces, but then they would put salt on it. Not just because God likes his food salted, but because it represented the covenant and it represented holiness, purity, right? So salt uh, enhances flavor, it purifies, and it preserves, and it curses, It's the other thing we see in the Bible with salt. It's a sign of curse. When God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, Deuteronomy 29 says that he had burned the land out with brimstone and salt. In uh, Judges, we read that Gideon's son Abimelech did the same thing in Shechem. He destroyed the city, then he sowed the fields with salt so that nothing would grow there. It was a sign of the curse. So those are the four uses of salt in the Bible. And those are also the ways in which we, as subjects of the king, as we go out into the world, we are to exert God's influence. We're to season the world. I want you to think about this in terms of the year just passed, in terms of the opportunities coming. How can we be salt out in the world? The first way is we season it. We enhance its flavor. God has indeed surrounded us with beauty, with wonder with evidence on every single side of his glory and his goodness and his wisdom. I mean, those little fingers and toes, how perfectly they're formed. Isn't that evidence of God's creative majesty? And we're surrounded by stuff like that. It's, it's so pervasive, and yet the world doesn't see it. They, in part, they don't want to see it, right? If they see it, they've got to, if you see the artwork, you've got to acknowledge the artist. But in part, it's because they're so blinded by the busyness of life. They're so weighed down by the cares of the moment that they can't pause just to look at the beauty that surrounds them. It's your calling as the ones who know the artist to point out the artwork. That can be as simple as saying, did you see how perfectly God painted that sunset? Or did you notice the amazing colors last fall that God put on the trees? I mean, he just worked the weather in such a way that it brought out all the colors all at the same time, right? We just work it, and it's hard at first. You, you have to think about it. You have to work it into your conversation, but pretty soon it becomes natural to point out what God has done, to demonstrate to those around you 
how God has worked beauty in the world. We have the ability, now this isn't the main reason to become a Christian, but as Christians, we have the ability to enjoy everything in the world in a way that an unbeliever can't. We can enjoy food, we can enjoy uh, artwork, we can enjoy marriage, we can enjoy relationships, we can enjoy all of it more than unbelievers can because we can enjoy it in the light of the one who made it. And that gives it a deeper meaning, a deeper significance. So we season the world, we also preserve the world. This is our evangelistic task. We have heard, we have embraced the glorious news that God sent his son to die that we might live. How can we know that? How can we know the most important news that this world has ever encountered and not share it? We need to tell the world. We need to tell the people in our lives. We need to tell the people God has set before us what he has done and what he is like. Now, now I know that not everyone has been called to be a, a minister or an evangelist of that sort, but God brings into every one of our lives people that don't know him. And he will bring you opportunities, especially if you ask for them, to share the truth of the gospel. Now, if you don't share that gospel, if they're elect, God will share it with them in some way, by some person. But if he puts them in your life, aren't you obligated, aren't you given a privilege to share the truth that will give them eternal life? I know it's hard. I know it's daunting. I know you fear what they might ask how they might stump you, how they might even ridicule you, so what? So what? They're about to drown. Are you worried that they'll refuse the life jacket you're throwing them? We have the opportunity to bring them preservation eternal and also purification. Remember, everything around us has been defiled by sin. Despite all the beauty that we see, even that beauty is tainted, isn't it? Our calling as Christians, is to purify that world. Now, we know that Christ is the only one who can make it perfect, right? But we're called, and this is part of our witness, we're called to do what little we can to get rid of that disorder, to get rid of that ugliness. Positively, that might mean going to those co-workers that are feuding and offering to mediate to bring about wholeness where there's brokenness, to bring about healing and help. That might mean cleaning up the ditches on your road. Anybody can be an environmentalist, but almost all of them are environmentalists for wrong reasons. They're environmentalists because they think it'll get them something, or they're environmentalists because they think otherwise the world will end and they're going to save it. No, we're environmentalists because we're stewards of what God has entrusted to us. And so as you clean up the ditches, as you pick up that trash, as you do what you can do to be a good steward of the land, a good steward of the things God has given you, when people say, why are you doing that? You one of those green people? And say, no, I'm one of the servants of the one who made it. And you have an opportunity to tell them about the true king and to talk to them about how he preserves or gives us everything that we need. We can also uh, do purifying work in a, well, simply by showing up, to be honest. It's funny, as a minister, um, how many times I've walked up to, to groups, thankfully not usually in church, uh, how, how many times I've walked up to groups where they know who I am and a joke stops in mid-telling. 
It's not because they don't think I have a sense of humor or think I don't have. It's because they knew the joke was inappropriate. I knew a young man who um, he had always longed to be a railroad engineer. I mean, when he was a kid, he would ride his bike down to the tracks. He had memorized all of the different kinds of locomotives, all of the different kinds of cars. He started befriending the guys when they stopped to switch cars and whatnot. He ended up becoming the youngest engineer in the history of the railroad that he got hired for. But he was a strong Christian. And so, legally, they can only go so far and then they have to not be in the train anymore. And so they would often put them up in a, a motel. And of course, when they got to the motel, the guys all wanted to go out and get a drink. They wanted to go to the bar. They wanted to party. And he said, I'm not going to do that. Oh, and they mocked him for a while. And they made fun of him. Oh, you're wet behind the ears yet. You, you wait. You'll, you'll change. But he didn't change. He didn't want to be a drunkard. He didn't want to be known as the partier. He wanted to do his job and be godly. You know what's funny is the mocking dried up. But the respect grew. And suddenly when Dale showed up, when Dale showed up, the jokes got cleaner. When Dale showed up, the people with trouble started kind of migrating over to him. When Dale showed up, uh, the talk got cleaned up quite a bit. He began purifying the workplace just by his presence, by living as a Christian. And we can do the same thing. If we ask God to give us eyes to see, if we ask God to show us how we can be a purifying influence. And if we're living in that way, if we're seasoning the world, if we're preserving what God has entrusted to us, if we're purifying the environment where we are, we will also be cursing. Not cursing in speaking the wrong way, but people will respond to us. Some will respond by wanting to know more, by wanting to be around us, but some will respond by mocking us behind our backs. Some will respond by rejecting everything we stand for. Some will respond by hating us. That's okay. Because they're still responding. They're still seeing Christ in you. And on that last great day, they won't have the excuse, I never knew. You see, salt, salt causes thirst, doesn't it? Now, sometimes, you know, you, I love sunflower seeds, always have. Go on a long trip, grab a bag of sunflower seeds, love it. But you notice what sunflower seeds always do? They make you thirst. And when they do that, you're going to do one or two things. You're either going to stop eating the sunflower seeds or you're going to grab a big glass of water. Some people, when they encounter you, when they encounter the salt of the earth, they're going to go for the water of life. They're going to turn in time to Christ. But others, they'll want nothing to do with that salt. They'll want nothing to do with the Lord or with you. But they will know that you were there. They will know that they encountered someone different. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Isn't that weird? 
how can salt lose its taste? Salt is salty. If it's not salty, it's not there, right? But see, we're used to that really purified Morton's salt, right? That stuff is purified out of salt water. So it's pure sodium chloride. When Jesus wrote that, they didn't have Morton's salt. They had salt that was mined from the Dead Sea area, and it wasn't pure salt, right? There was nothing really harmful in it, but it wasn't pure salt. It was filled with impurities. And so if you left it in a wet place, if you left it even in a place of high humidity, which was pretty rare in that place, the salt could leach out. And all you'd be left with would be the impurities. A bunch of little flakes of chalk and calcium and gypsum, like our drywall. That's not good for anything. It certainly doesn't add anything good to your food. So you would just throw it out and get some more. And he says that can happen to us. You see, salt works through contact. We have to be in the world. But if we start to become of the world, then our saltiness will leach away. So we have to beware that while we're out influencing the world, we don't become like the world. Or suddenly we won't season, we won't purify, we won't preserve anything because we will have become what the world is. This we must not allow, but instead we must resolve to continue to be salinated. We do that by by spending time with the one who gives us that which is unique, the one who makes us unique, by spending time in the word, in prayer, among the people of God. So that when we go out in the world, we will be salty. We will be different. Well, then Jesus changes metaphors to light. You are the light of the world. Now, that's quite symbolic. Light is often used in the Bible in very symbolic ways. But here's what it comes down to. God is light. Jesus is the light who gives light. The Word, Psalm 119, is the light that sheds light upon our path. What that means is the the chief metaphor by which light is known to us is it reflects God. God is light, and whatever speaks of God shines His light. In that we see our second point, and that's that we are to extend God's image by our Christ-likeness. Light, you are the light of the world. If you are in Christ, that's what you are. That's who you are. That means Christ is in you through the Holy Spirit. And you are in the world by means of his ordination, by means of his sending. You are the light of the world. That's who you are. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Your identity is to be light. Your identity is to reveal Christ to the world. One commentator points out that this makes us very much like the moon. We see the sun in the sky. We see the origin of light, right? When Christ was in the world, people saw in him God. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, right? But when he ascended to heaven... 
Well, they couldn't see him anymore, could they? They were left in the darkness of this world. But when the sun goes down here, unless it's a cloudy night, it's not pitch black, is it? No, oftentimes it's quite light out because of the moon. The moon chases away that darkness, not because of light it has in itself, but because of the light of the sun which it reflects. Well, that's us. We don't have the light of ourselves. We have it because we reflect Christ to a watching world. Now understand, that's, that means that reflecting light into the world's darkness is not an option. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, he says. And that's us as the church. That's us as Christians. You can't not notice that. I remember living out in um, rural Minnesota. I would go for a bike ride at night and often use the light of the moon just to to guide myself. But you could tell that you were coming to a town, even a small town of 100, 200 people, when you were miles away because the few lights of the houses would just light up the sky. That's what we do because of the darkness of this world. And our society is getting darker and darker and darker. We see it, right? But the darker our society gets, the brighter we shine. The more noticeable we become, the more people can't not notice something different about us. Now, of course, we could obscure our light. If we separated ourselves from society, perhaps started a commune out in the woods. But Jesus says that's both wrong and foolish. He compares us to a lamp in a house. Back in those days, most houses were one room with perhaps one or two guest rooms off to the side. But the family, they lived and they ate and they worked in that one main room. They even brought their animals into it at night. And so if you wanted to get some more work done in the evening or you wanted to spend some time visiting in the evening, you would light a lamp. And, it, and there was usually either a shelf, a stone shelf high up on a wall or a, a metal lampstand. If you put that lamp on the lampstand or on the shelf the whole house would be lit by that one lamp. It's beautiful. And he says, that's what you do. You don't hide it. You don't put a lamp under a a basket. You could do that, but why would you do that? That'd be a waste. That'd be silly. You put it up on a lampstand so that it gives light to everyone. And that is what is proper for us. We were created to reflect the light of Christ into every corner of this dark world. So don't hide, he says. Shine your light broadly. Show the image of Christ in all that you do, in all that you say, and everywhere that you go. And so in that connection, he gives us a warning, which is our last point. He sends us into the world to be seen, influencing the world, showing Christ to the world. But therein lies a temptation, and it's the temptation of pride. So Jesus fights that temptation in us. By showing us our proper motivation. In the same way, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Notice how that's framed. First of all, it's a command. Jesus isn't giving an option. You know, you might want to let you... No, he says, do this. This is your calling. This is who you are, right? This is helpful at the start of the year. Because we don't know... What's coming? We don't know what challenges or triumphs we might face. 
But this is unqualified. This is our command. No matter what we're facing, no matter what looms ahead of us, do this. What do we do? Notice how passive it is. Let your light shine. That tells us that what we're called to do is what will naturally occur. God created us to be light, to reflect the image of Christ. If we're being salt, right, if we're doing what we're called to do, if we're uh, preserving and purifying and deepening appreciation for what God has done, people are going to notice that. Our light is going to shine. They're going to see Christ in us. So he says, let that happen. In other words, don't work to stop it. We could do that. We could withdraw from society. We could refuse to interact with people that are different from us, people who aren't Christians. We could refuse to embrace the opportunities before us. We could refuse to use our gifts. People have done that, right? That's the whole Anabaptist ideal. We're just going to form a colony all by ourselves, right? Some people have accused the Dutch Reformed of that. Well, why else did they go to the middle of the woods in Michigan, out in the middle of the prairie in Iowa? They wanted to form a little colony all by themselves, stay away from unbelievers, but that's not at all what they did. They got here because of opportunity, but then they began spreading the message of who they were and and who their God is to everyone who was willing to listen. They, They got involved in society. Some of the folks who came over, they ended up really quite involved in American politics. Why? Because they knew that they were not to let their light be hidden. They understood that they were not to put it under a basket. Let your light shine before men. Now this is a little counterintuitive, especially in the light of what comes next in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus tells us that we're not to give in ways that cause people to recognize us. We're not to pray in ways that cause people to recognize us. We're not to fast in ways that cause people to recognize us. Because he doesn't want us putting our pride on display. But you see, we're we're not to put our pride on display. We're to put our God on display. Let your light shine before men, before others, so that they see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Not that they give glory to you. Not that they say, boy, I wish I could be like you. Oh, I wish I could. Oh, oh, you're such a good person. Hey, can you pray for me because I'm not good like... No. And they will say those things. And it's embarrassing and we... Ah. But don't just turn away from them. Say, oh, hold on. I'm not that good. You just don't know my heart but I serve a God who is that good, right? And we can redirect them. Don't praise the moon. Praise the sun whose light it reflects. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven, which tells us that our calling is both to do those good works, to live those lives that reflect Christ, that show them that which is different about us, right? How do we do that? Well, we can talk about the Lord. We should talk about the Lord. But we can rejoice. We can have comfort in hard situations. We can celebrate the good things that God does for us. We can praise the Lord. 
We can delight in our day of rest. We can be different. We can foster, cultivate those different priorities that Christ commends to us. And as we do that, the light of Christ will shine. And if they point the finger at us, if they say, you're such a good person, I wish I had such a, the, the kind of marriage that you had, I wish I had the kind of kids you have, I wish, stop. You know what? If you see something different about me, it's the Lord, it's not me. I didn't do that. It's as simple as that. And suddenly they're not looking at you. They're not glorifying you. They're looking at your good works and glorifying the Father in heaven. And they will. One way or another, they will. If you're living in a way that reflects the light of Christ, they will glorify you by following you, or glorify God by following you. By asking the reason for the hope that's within you and then putting their hope there. God is always glorified when people follow you into the faith that seeks Christ. Or they will glorify God later. Because they will stand before the judgment seat and their sins will be laid out. And they'll say, well, but Lord, I never... And he'll say, don't you say it. You encountered my people here and here and here and here and here. You saw the light of Christ in them. You saw what made them different and you said no. You closed your eyes to it. You rejected it. You walked back out into the darkness. And they will say, you're right. And they will glorify God for having given them the opportunity that they rejected. But they will glorify Him. And your good works will be the catalyst. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what the year ahead holds. I know the last year has been quite a year. There's been a lot to praise the Lord for and a lot to fall to our knees seeking help for. But this I know. No matter what the year holds, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of of the world, no matter what this coming year holds, God desires to use us to reflect Himself to a watching world and through us to bring glory to Him. So I want to challenge each one of you to pray that God would show you how you can be salt in the world. How you can flavor the world, season the world. How you can be a preserving influence in a world filled with brokenness. How you can be a purifying influence in a world filled with sin and defilement. And then I I encourage you to pray that God would keep you from hiding your light. To pray that God would allow you to let your light so shine that he would be glorified by those who encounter you, those in whose lives he brings you. He loves to answer those prayers. And as he does, he will be glorified and our, both our difficult situations and our great ones will be ultimately used to bring worship and glory unto God. And what more can we ask than that? Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that you would enable us to recognize our identity as salt and as light and to live self-consciously, intentionally, in a way that allows others to encounter Christ through us. Father, you know how weak we are, how sinful we are, how faulty we are. And yet we know that you are good, that you are gracious, and that you're able to use, willing to use, even the likes of us. And so we pray that you would. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.